I never got any money from you. Be normal. And now, Mr. Edwards, I would like to make a disclosure, which is something which has never been revealed to the public. This is The Saucer Life, exploring the history and lore of flying saucers. I'm Aaron Gullius. The Saucer Life is a podcast in which we explore concepts, events, or people from the world of flying saucers. No preconceptions, no snark, no belief, no debunking, no idea if these are real aliens we're talking about, or if they're ultra-terrestrials, or if they're none of the above. This is Encounter 707, an apple a day. One of the most fascinating aspects of the Mothman prophecies is Keel's experiences with a supposed ultra-terrestrial, probably, named Mr. Apple. Now, technically, this is the second half of our Mothman exploration, but really, it's its own thing. And Keel's experiences with a number of different contactees and messages they brought or sent him from their supposed otherworldly, other-universally, other-universally, other-universe-minded contacts is a weird thing. That's all I can really say about it. So let's get started. In the book, it all begins with a woman named J.P. Paro. Paro, and that wasn't her real name, Probably, but that's a pretty overly complicated story. Perro worked in radio in New York in the late 1960s and became acquainted with Keel through her investigations into some strange things that were happening near an area called Mount Misery in Long Island. Now, the Mount Misery chapter, um, Misery on the Mount, in, um, in the Mothman prophecies is, is fairly compact, but the actual constellation of events that was going on near Mount Misery there up in Long Island sort of rivals what was going on in Point Pleasant in terms of weirdness and the prolificness of the strangeness that was happening. Now, in the book, some of the events that are described as happening to a woman named Jane in real life happened to Jay Pero. Um separating it out into two different people, Jane being portrayed by Keel as a friend of Jay, was something that he did to sort of retweak the narrative between what had really happened in 1966 and 1967 and how he explains it in the Mothman prophecies. So Jane, when you read the Mothman prophecies, she didn't exist. Those were experiences that were probably relayed by Jay Paro to Keel and her describing them as happening to herself. As we saw in our exploration of some of Keel's notes from our Mothman Unplugged episode, his writings, even the preliminary ones not meant for an audience, tended to be dense and complex. And so the story of what was going on in New York while everything else was going on in Point Pleasant, West Virginia, is incredibly, incredibly complicated. And I'm really not a detail guy. I'm a big picture guy. And so it's it's confusing. It's confusing to me to read. It's uh, hopefully not confusing for you to listen to. Jane, or Jay's, first encounter with the mysterious figure we're focusing on today involved a phone call telling her to go to a library and find a certain book. She was instructed to turn to page 42 and start reading. Now, I have to say, the first time I read this, I saw page 42, 
And the first thing I thought was there is some deep, dark connection to Douglas Adams's work with 42 being the answer to the ultimate question of life, the universe and everything. Then I thought about that some more and realized it probably wasn't connected at all. But every time I see that page 42, that's what I think. So she goes to the library. She finds the book. And as she reads, quote, the print became smaller and smaller, then larger and larger. It changed into a message. This is what the message said. Good morning, friend. You have been selected for many reasons. One is that you are advanced in auto-suggestion. Through this science, we will make contact. I have messages concerning Earth and its people. The time is set. Fear not, I am a friend. For reasons best known to ourselves, you must make your contacts known to one reliable person. To break this code is to break contact. Proof shall be given. Notes must be kept of the suggestion state. Be in peace. Signed, Appel. Jay, or Jane, if you prefer, would encounter a number of strange individuals after this. For example, the librarian from the library where she read the note. The woman that warned her, for example, a few pages later, that, quote, Peter was coming. This, possibly, Keel wrote, was a reference to the prophesied final pope who would be named Peter. There's more predictions about popes coming up. This woman and a male companion who introduced himself as Apple, um, same name as in the note, it's spelled A-P-O-L in the book, but in Keel's notes, it's spelled in a variety of ways. In the original library note, it was A-P-A-L. In some of the letters that are sent to Keel, it's spelled A-P-P-E-L-L. What's consistent is that it seems to be pronounced Apple, hence an apple a day, the closest thing to a good pun I could come up with. So, Jay meets these people on the street, and they gave her a metal disc. And the purpose of this disc was so that they would always know where she was. She asks them, who are they? And according to Apple, they were, quote, the very good people. Jay then mails the disc to Keel to get his opinion on it. And when Keel gets it, he finds it to be fairly unremarkable. It's just a metal disc, sort of like a, a dog would wear as a sort of dog tag, but not engraved, sort of thin, cheap metal. But it confirms to him, he says in the book, that the meeting she had with the two individuals had not been hallucinatory. He mails the disc back to her. And to his surprise, she gets in contact with him and says, hey, why did you screw up my disc? And he says, I didn't do anything of the sort. It was blackened, it was bent, it had turned black, and it smelled like sulfur. So we've seen things like this metal disc before. If you go back into the archives and check out one of our first episodes on Al Bender and the Men in Black, you'll remember or see that he was given a similar piece of metal that could be used to summon the aliens from the planet Kaik. And presumably, since he could use it to summon them, that piece of metal also gave them something of an ability to locate Bender if necessary. I don't know if Keel would have thought about that connection. Probably not. Although he, well, maybe by the time he wrote the Mothman prophecies, he might have. But in 66, 67, he was still fairly new to this. So who knows? So a number of John's acquaintances kept up contact with the supposed extraterrestrial or ultra-terrestrial beings during this time. Apple, through Jay, would send messages to John and make predictions. 
the prophecies part of the Mothman prophecies partially refers to this. Many of these messages and the correspondence that Keel refers to in the book but doesn't reproduce are available at johnkeel.com. But one set of prophecies or predictions discussed in the book involved plane crashes and the assassination of the Pope. Keel describes these things this way. On June 19th, Mr. Apple gave Jane a message to pass along to me. It was a prediction. Quote, things will become more serious in the Middle East. The Pope will go there soon on a peace mission. He will be martyred there in a horrible way, knifed to death in a bloody manner. Then the Antichrist will rise up out of Israel. End quote. I was shocked, but here was a statement that could be checked against future events. Apple also said the Vatican was planning to send food and material to Arab refugees. There had been no announcement in the press about this. On June 28th, the Vatican announced that a personal envoy of Pope Paul VI, Monsignor Abramo Frescht, was being dispatched to Cairo to discuss Vatican assistance to war victims and refugees. On June 30th, it was announced that the wooden throne said to have been used by St. Peter was going to be dug out of the Vatican basement and placed on display for the first time since 1967. This would not be the only time in the Mothman prophecies that predictions Keel had received would, would come true in some way. To learn a little more about what was going on with all of this, especially with Jane, as she's called in the book, and her connection with Mr. Apple, Keel drives out to Long Island and hypnotizes Jane. But something weird happens during this hypnotic session. After performing various tests to assure myself that she was really in a deep trance, I began to ask her subtle questions about Apple and his friends. To my utter amazement, the impossible happened. The control was taken away from me. I couldn't direct the session. Instead, I found myself talking directly to Apple through Jane. He wanted to talk about Marilyn Monroe and Robert Kennedy. I didn't want to gossip, I insisted, but wanted some hard facts on the overall situation. Apple persisted, warning me that Kennedy was in grave danger. Where was he talking from? He said he was parked nearby in his Cadillac. He made some specific predictions about impending plane crashes, then returned to Marilyn and Kennedy. The predicted plane crashes occurred right on schedule. I was slowly convincing myself that the entities were somehow tuned to the future. I was making other startling discoveries. I had only to think of a serious question and my phone would ring and Jane would deliver a message from Apple answering it. The year of the Garuda, 1966-1967, was only half over, and I was talking to half a dozen entities through contactees scattered throughout the Northeast. Scores of new games were going on at once, each one designed to prove something to me, not to the contactees. The latter would never quite figure out what was happening to them or what it all meant. Like the UFO enthusiasts themselves, the contactees would be manipulated, used as robots to propagate beliefs and false frames of reference, and then be discarded to sit in the darkness and wonder why the world was not as they had imagined it, why the wonderful space people had abandoned them. The most dire prophecies that we covered in our Mothman Unplugged episode, of course, involved a disaster happening in West Virginia. As a reminder, this is how he described that sequence of events. And this is the version from the book, not the one we had in that episode. So it's a little a little different because it's from the, the book published in 75 and not the letter he wrote to Mary Heyer back in 1967. In addition to the continuing warnings about the December power blackout, the entities now began to tell me about a terrible forthcoming disaster on the Ohio River. Many people would die, they said. They implied that one of the factories along the Ohio would blow up. 
On November 3, 1967, I wrote to Mary Heyer and told her, I have reason to suspect there may soon be a disaster in the Point Pleasant area which will not be related to the UFO mystery. A plant along the river may either blow up or burn down. Possibly the Navy installation in Point Pleasant will be the center of such a disaster. A lot of people may be hurt. Don't even hint to anybody anything about this. Now that letter that he talks about and the prediction of a disaster along the Ohio River, possibly centered in Point Pleasant, sounds like one of those things that would have been embellished after the fact in 1974 or 75 when he's writing this book. But we know from our previous episode and, and the materials at johnkeel.com that that letter, that's pretty much word for word what he wrote to Mary Heyer. So what we're seeing is the increasing paranoia that Keel describes in the Mothman prophecies. We can go back to the original sources and see in some of these things where these strange ideas were coming from. When he talks about contacts with strange beings through the contactees there on Long Island, we can go back to his notes and to his correspondence and see what this stuff was like. So I'd like to turn now to some of the communication between Keel and Apple. This is, I think, really interesting stuff. Let's look first at Apple's thoughts about Mothman. In an attempt to learn more about what is going on, I asked Jay to invite Apple to her house tonight. At 11 p.m., I talked with him for over an hour on the phone. He is still not quite himself. He warned me not to go to West Virginia, that it would be dangerous for me. He said that the Mothman is some type of creature from under the earth, which has been dormant for centuries and is now being brought up by the enemy. They are systematically taking over all of West Virginia. He said that these creatures thrive on human blood. Their occasional appearances over the centuries gave rise to our vampire legends. Like vampires, they are afraid of the cross, particularly crosses made out of gold. We discussed a great many things, and it was a fruitful conversation. Apple told me that all the aliens are disturbed by light beams and that flashlights, etc. should not be used to signal UFOs. Some of the UFOs react with hostility when hit by beams of light. Since light is a form of concentrated energy, it is probable that this energy disturbs the composition of both the UFOs and the aliens. Apple said that his people had only a token force in West Virginia, at a place called Rodney's Point, and that they could not protect me if I went down there. He said that the enemy would soon take over West Virginia and other states. It seems that the conflict is entering new and dangerous stages. Apple says that it will break into the wide open in the next three years. New York and many other cities may be totally destroyed in this war. He also said that a big blackout will occur sometime around Christmas of this year. The energy people, he said, work mostly around military bases, the Pentagon, etc. They freeze our people and enter such places at will. Jay's parents are frequently frozen these days. That is, they are suddenly placed in a suspended state. For example, Agar might come to visit Jay while her parents are at home, and as soon as Agar enters the apartment, her parents are transfixed and oblivious to what is going on. When Agar leaves, her parents become unfrozen and continue with whatever acts or talk they were carrying on before they were frozen, totally oblivious to the interruption. There doesn't seem to be any way in which we mortals can combat these incredible techniques. Agar, um, incidentally, was a woman that was um, Apple's friend. She was another one of the, the beings that Jay Perro was in contact with. There are a number of narrative strands that come across in the notes about Apple and his people and the correspondence that Keel made at the time 
that didn't quite make it into the Mothman prophecies, not not in as full a way. And one of these things was the the conflict between Apple's people and another group of more evil creatures that were um, that were opposing them, and that much of this conflict was happening in in West Virginia, but it would soon, as we just heard, spill out into the wider world. One of the most fascinating things that Keel did was send Apple questionnaires, which sought to draw him out on various topics that he had communicated to Keel. These topics included the number of Apple's people on Earth, their connections to the government, and the unnamed enemy they were fighting. There's also some question about the control of contactees by Apple's people, as Jane was controlled while Keel was hypnotizing her. We'll take a look at some of the questions and answers. And the first questionnaire involved questions about other people Apple's folks had contacted. Keel gave him a list of names with yes, no, and a space for comments. The following people all claim to have been contacted by alien personages. They've all brought ridicule upon themselves by telling their stories publicly. Please tell us which of these people were actually contacted either by you or by groups known to you. We would also appreciate whatever comments you wish to make about each individual and the manner in which he or she utilized the information passed on. Of course, as you'll hear in some of the names, we know that these were not contactees. It seems that Keel might have been trying to trick Apple to see what he would say when confronted with, you know, Dwight Eisenhower was a contactee. Um, Would he say, no, he wasn't, or would he sort of play along or, or reveal that they had made contact with people who hadn't claimed being a contactee. So here's some of the uh, some of the names and Apple's responses. George Adamski. Contacted. Woodrow Derenberger. Saw Saucer. Long John Neville. Contacted. Dwight D. Eisenhower. Contacted. Hurtas. General George C. Marshall. Contacted. Used. General Douglas MacArthur. Contacted. Good friend. General Hoyt Vandenberg. Contacted one time. Not believe. There were also questions about Apple's people on these questionnaires. Do some of your people live on or in the Earth? Do you have permanent bases at places like Mount Shasta? Or are there bases on Earth which are occupied by other groups known to you but unknown to us? Yes. But not Mount Shasta. Are your bases or your world disturbed by the effects of our atomic experiments? No. From information which you have already given, it appears that you do not ordinarily occupy physical bodies as we do, but that you exist in another state in your own world. Could you describe your real state or appearance? Transparent. Amoeba-like. When you are in our world, do you sometimes occupy the bodies of our people? Do you, for example, resurrect dead humans and occupy their bodies? No dead humans. Yes, we we occupy other bodies. How do you obtain money and financing when you are in our world? We get money from our leader. There are also some questions about Apple's enemy, or, or his people's enemy, and their plans, this enemy's plans for the Earth. Are you and your enemies engaged in a battle for control of the minds of all men? Yes. Do you want to rule our world? No. Do your enemies want to rule our world? Yes. Are your enemies conducting experiments identical to your own? Not identical. Similar. Have your people moved among us many times in the past? 
Have your words and deeds influenced our thinking throughout history? Yes. Are you in contact or do you control terrestrial organizations such as the Rosicrucians, the Masonic Lodges, etc.? We do not control these groups. Do you believe that outright exposure of your presence among us and general acknowledgement of your existence would endanger your plan and endanger your people and ours as well? Yes, yes, yes. Do your enemies have control of the government leaders who dictate UFO policies? Some. Do you agree with the anti-UFO policies or would you like to see a change in the official attitude? Anti-UFO policy is part of our plans. Do you plan to come into open contact with us at some point in the future, or will this always remain impossible? We plan open contact, yes. Do you believe that you own the Earth, or do your enemies believe that they can own the Earth and all that is on it? We own. They want to. Other questionnaires had a real variety of things that were asked, and here are some examples. I wish I could share them all with you because they're so much fun, but we're limited by time actually thinking about it, there's only one more question I want to share with you because it's, it's just, it's weird. And, and it's, it's slightly funny, slightly sinister, slightly sort of seeing the, the mask of Mr. Apple slip and, and giving you the idea that this, this is maybe not an ultra terrestrial we're talking to. Are you prejudiced against the Jewish people? little bit. So what are we to make of all this? What are we to make of the Mr. Apple who's a little bit anti-Semitic? Who, if anyone, was Apple? Unless I'm missing something in the Keel archives at johnkeel.com, Keel never personally met a physical being named Apple. The conversations were via letters or, or channeled through Jay Perro. Was she on the up and up? Was she suffering from basically possession or a psychological condition that mimicked possession? Was she pulling a deeply elaborate prank? And if so, were the numerous other contactees Keel was in touch with during this time doing the same thing? Because if so, they were all really well coordinated. Is it any wonder that as you read the Mothman prophecies, you see Keel, Keel, Keel himself becoming increasingly paranoid throughout 1967? It's not surprising, really. Here's an example of one of the actual letters from Apple. It's from November 24th, 1967, just a few weeks before the Silver Bridge collapse. In it, he warns Keel about uh, Helen Obermeyer, who's another contactee, and he mentions a couple other names, and those are other contactees that Keel was dealing with. He also provides some predictions. When he says the name Tinma in here, he's referring to Jay Perro. To John, greetings again. Helen Obermeyer has turned against us. She has been insincere with me. For now, be careful what you say to her. Trust her not. Her mind is not sharp and clear. She does not think as well as the others. We shall just watch quietly now. Louise is still doing well. In her own way, she has helped us much. She is a sincere one. She is not always aware of her actions. Pat Desposito will soon go on to West Virginia. Ruth will stay on Long Island. You must warn Timna that Bernhardt is secretly snooping around for info on Mount Misery. He looked to write all about the mountain. Do not let him steal story. I have enclosed a sketch of Agar that Timna did when you were away. It is a wonderful likeness. Agar was wild about it. Timna is good with her hands. Not only does she throw things well, but she throws things well, too. Watch for another air disaster before Christmas. Lights will stop and the city will again go into darkness. Greenfield, who arranged your talk, is not, by the way, a contactee. 
USA going to back down in Vietnam come about late 1968, early 1969, upsweep of Chinese influence, authority and prestige, a deal will be arranged between USA and China, Formosa and a place at the United Nations in exchange for peace in Vietnam. I can give Tima predictions up to 1966 and 77. Queen Farha Diba is now at a comparatively fateful period of life. Watch for events over the next 12 to 18 months which fatefully affect the future. I must end now. I am deeply tired. Everything's good. Apple. In the book, perhaps with the benefit of a few years' hindsight, Keel speculates on the nature of Apple and his people. After many freakish phone conversations and exchanges of letters to non-existent addresses, I had a definite date for the big December event. It was scheduled for December 15th. By this time, Mr. Apple had assumed a definite personality. He was as real to me as cold was to Derenberger, although I would never meet him. I studied his psychology, his quick temper, his mischievous sense of humor. I argued with him on the phone and sometimes for two or three hours at a stretch, and I felt sorry for him. It became apparent that he really did not know who or what he was. He was a prisoner of our time frame. He often confused the past with the future. I gathered that he and all his fellow entities found themselves transported backward and forward in time involuntarily, playing out their little games because they were programmed to do so, living or existing, only as long as they could feed off the energy and minds of mediums and contactees. I could ask him any kind of obscure question, and receive an instant and accurate answer, perhaps because my own mind was being tapped just like my telephone. Where was my mother's father born? Cameron Mills, New York, of course. Where had I misplaced my stopwatch? Look in the shoebox in the upper right-hand corner of the bedroom closet. It was there. Everyone always talks about Mothman, but Apple and his compatriots have garnered far less attention over the decades. I wonder if the original title of the book had been Year of the Garuda, that there would have taken a bit of the focus away from Mothy and led to the rest of the features of the book being a bit more well-remembered. Mothman's legacy would continue, with numerous books being written about him and similar creatures. The best of these are by cryptozoologist Lauren Coleman, and I will not mention the worst of the Mothman books, because I don't want you to waste your time looking at them. But I will say that, yes, there is Mothman erotica. I have not read it, um... I don't want to. The close encounter with the bur- with the uh, Bigfoot erotica sort of, sort of broke my brain. I believe I mentioned this a few episodes ago, but uh, Tanya Derenberger Bowman, Woody's daughter, has written a book about all the ways that Indrid Cold, Carl Ardo, and the rest of the Lanulosians have been a part of her life for the last 50 years. It's called Beyond Lanulos, Our 50 Years with Indrid Cold. It's, um... It's okay. Sadly, Tanya announced the following on Facebook on September 18th, 2018. Quote, This just in. I received two visitors carrying some devastating news. Indrid Cold, age 92, Demo Hassan, and Carl Ardo died today. When I have more info, I will pass it along. End quote. She also said, Obit posted soon, but I don't think it's there yet. I want to know. I desperately want to know what killed these three guys on the same day. And was Mr. Apple involved? In any case, it's nothing you need to go out of your way to read, unless you like Indrid Cold fanfic. Which you might. I'm not judging. She has another book coming out at some point called Indrid Cold, Man or Myth. I'm going to go with neither. Indrid Cold, Apple, Tiny the Man in Black... 
a lot of strange things and strange people circulated around the Mothman. And, and one thing I've never been able to really decide on is if all of this was a flying saucer thing that had some paranormal cryptozoological stuff associated with it, or a paranormal cryptozoological thing that had some flying saucers show up. I'm pretty comfortable, despite the ambiguity, having it as part of my personal saucer life, because as we've seen in so many of these stories, the barriers between things like aliens and ghosts and cryptozoology, those barriers are a lot more permeable than we might think. I'm tired of Mothman. Next time, another contactee you've never heard of as we look at the classic but relatively little-known book, Round Trip to Hell in a Flying Saucer. Tune in next time for Encounter 708. We're going to hell for this. The Saucer Life, Encounter 707, was written and produced by me, Aaron Gullius, and is a Chizo Media production. Thank you to johnkeel.com for doing the tremendously important work of archiving Keel's notes and files and correspondence and sharing them with the research community. Go check out johnkeel.com. You can explore the archives at saucerlife.com, and you can follow along on Twitter and Instagram at saucerlife or email us at thesaucerlife at gmail.com. You can subscribe to The Saucer Life everywhere you find podcasts. Till next time, keep watching the skies, because the skies are watching you.